Hello and welcome to the latest podcast from The Lancet Neurology. I'm Richard Lane and in this month's podcast we're going to discuss a very important paper concerning respiratory function among people with ALS and I'm delighted to be joined on the line by one of the authors of the paper that's published online on July the 31st. My name's Chris McDermott. I'm a consultant neurologist at Sheffield Teaching Hospitals and a reader in neurology at the University of Sheffield. Thank you very much. Now we're discussing your paper published on July the 31st, an important paper. This is concerning ventilation, isn't it? Respiratory support for people who have amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, ALS or motor neurone disease as it is also known. What is the clinical problem here that we're addressing? What's the context? Well, motor neurone disease, as you said, also known as amyotrophic lateral sclerosis or ALS, it's an incurable neurodegenerative condition and it causes gradual paralysis of the limbs, uh, the bulbar muscles, and the respiratory muscles. Management is largely aimed at easing symptoms and supporting patients to maximize their function, usually through a multidisciplinary approach. There's one treatment, uh, Rilluzol, which can marginally slow down disease progression and prolong survival, usually by around three months. However, the greatest impact on the disease course comes from the use of non-invasive ventilation. And a randomized control trial uh, in around 2006 demonstrated an improvement in quality of life uh, and a median survival benefit of about seven months. But the issue is NIV is not without its problems, and some individuals are unable to tolerate it due to problems such as claustrophobia, mask interface issues. So there is a real need uh, for an alternative. Then even those who do get on with it, if you offered them an alternative, which didn't require them to have to wear a mask in bed at night with essentially a wind machine next to the bed, I'm sure they'd gladly take it. And then there also comes a point in the course of the disease when NIV is no longer effective. So the idea of an intervention with additive benefits is quite appealing. So um, phrenic nerve stimulation um, causing contraction of the diaphragm, which is the main breathing muscle, is such a potential alternative or complementary method of providing respiratory support. The approach uh, originated in patients initially uh, with spinal cord injury, and historically it required a direct phrenic nerve stimulation, so that required a thoracotomy, and that was a, quite, a, quite a challenge to need to do that. And there was also the risk of iatrogenic phrenic nerve injury as you were trying to place clips onto the rather delicate phrenic nerves. Indeed, yeah. So, so the idea here is then that um, that you'd be looking at um, diaphragm pacing. Is that right? Uh, in, in conjunction with non-invasive ventilation. Yeah. So, so the the idea here is to add in a pacing system on top of NIV, and the the sort of difference with the pacing system that's being used in this study compared to historical pacing systems is that rather than doing the thoracotomy and placing the electrodes on the, on the phrenic nerve, it's actually inserting the electrodes into the undersurface of the diaphragm. So uh, the approach that's taken, it's a, it's a laparoscopic procedure, so the, the type of um, surgery that anyone having the gallbladder taken out would have, um, so that, and the laparoscopic surgeon would go in abdominally, would visualize the diaphragm, uh, and insert the electrodes in the undersurface of the diaphragm near the motor endpoint of the phrenic nerve. So it, it, it's minimally invasive uh, technique. 
and then the electrodes are tunneled out subcutaneously to an exit site on the abdomen and then an external stimulator, so a small box, um, delivers the stimulus pulses uh, and provides contraction to the diaphragm. Before we talk about your trial, just briefly tell us about previous research because it's relevant, isn't it, to, to the creation of, of your trial? Yes. So initial experience with the diaphragm pacing system used in this study was in the spinal cord injury population, and it suggested diaphragm pacing could reduce time spent on mechanical ventilation. Uh, in the ALS population, uh, the evidence is limited to one case series uh, and uncontrolled and one uncontrolled multicenter cohort study. The findings are consistent. Uh, with those from the spinal cord patient population, highlighting the apparent simplicity of the operation uh, and the safety of, of the operation. Um, survival for patients uh, who received the diaphragm pacing device in that study uh, is reported as 39 months from diagnosis and 19 months uh, from implantation on 84 patients who were implanted out of the 144 who were enrolled. Now, because it's a cohort study, there are no um, uh, uh, control pop population to compare survival with. Instead, um, what is available is a comparison of a subgroup of 43 of the patients with a historical control group from the literature. And uh, what that comparison uh, reports is a survival of 37 and a half months from diagnosis for patients receiving pacing compared to 21.4 months for patients in the historical control. So uh, an apparently large survival benefit uh, in the diaphragm pacing group compared to historical controls. Now, this uh, sort of data uh, was submitted to the FDA in the States um, uh, for a humanitarian use device approval, uh, and it, that was granted. So the FDA state um, that a humanitarian use device is a device that's intended to benefit patients by treating a disease that affects fewer than 4,000 individuals in the United States per year. And to obtain approval for a humanitarian use device, uh, a humanitarian device exemption application is submitted to the FDA, what is important is the HDE application is not required to contain the results of scientifically valid clinical investigations demonstrating the device is effective for its intended purpose. The application must contain only sufficient information for the FDA to determine that the device does not pose an unreasonable or significant risk of illness or injury and that the probable benefit to health outweighs the risk of injury or illness from its use. I see. That's interesting, yeah. So the standard of, of, of evidence has, has been lowered uh, in order for diaphragm pacing to be approved for use uh, in ALS. And on the basis of this approval, uh, there is an increasing use uh, of diaphragm pacing around the world. As a community, uh, the UK M&D clinical community was interested in the potential benefits of, of diaphragm pacing and what it could bring to our patients. However, we recognize that the data, whilst encouraging, were from one cohort study 
and felt that there was need to demonstrate effectiveness more robustly by means of an RCT. We were also mindful the pacing is expensive and we were uncertain whether pacing would meet the NICE threshold for cost-effective interventions. So at the time of conducting the DIPAS trial, the cost of uh, pacing and implantation procedures was of the magnitude of £20,000 per participant. Therefore, whilst the preliminary data were promising, we felt pacing was unlikely to be widely introduced without robust, randomised evidence together with a formal analysis of cost-effectiveness. And that really was our motivation for undertaking the DIPAS trial. Thank you. That's, that context is, is really important. Briefly, please, just um, details on methods and, and key findings, which, of course, are very important, as we're about to find out. DIPAS is a multi-centre, open-label, randomised, uh, controlled trial. It took place in seven uh, specialist ALS and respiratory centres in the UK. Our eligible patients really were anyone with motor neuron disease who was uh, at the start of developing respiratory failure. Um, we randomized uh, participants um, with uh, minimization that balanced patients for age, sex, uh, forced vital capacity and bulbar function to receive either non-invasive ventilation plus pacing or non-invasive ventilation alone. The primary outcome was overall survival defined as time from randomization to death from any cause, and we did the analysis on an intention-to-treat basis. We randomly assigned the 74 participants, um, and uh, we had 37 per arm. On December uh, the 18th in 2018, our Data Monitoring and Ethics Committee recommended suspension of recruitment on the basis of overall survival figures. So our initial uh, target re recruitment had been 108, so we were, we were stopping the study about two-thirds of the way in. Um, we were instructed not to implant any further patients, but to continue pacing and the trial procedures on those who were already implanted. The DMEC continued to review incoming data, and uh, in June 2014, they advised discontinuation of pacing in all patients. Follow-up assessments continued until the planned end of the study, which was in December 2014. When we looked at the data, survival was shorter, in the non-invasive ventilation plus pacing group than in the non-invasive ventilation group alone. We had a median survival of 11 months in the pacing group and 22.5 months in the NIV control group. Gosh, so, so yeah. an actual halving of survival time. That's right, and the hazard ratio was uh, 2.27. That's an extraordinary and an alarming finding, and understandably the trial was stopped I mean, obvious question, why, why do you think that occurred? Indeed, the results were disappointing and very unexpected. Um, so we, we, we looked first at our data and the procedures that we'd undertaken to see if the study had been imbalanced in some way. Our baseline characteristics were well matched for sex, respiratory function, bulbar function, and the trajectory of decline pre-implantation. The pacing group were slightly older, but not enough to explain the huge differences that we observed. A further concern we had was could patients in the pacing arm have decided not to use their NIV, which we know is a proven intervention, perhaps because they, they preferred the pacing system and thought they'd rely on that. However, NIV use was similar across uh, both groups. And perhaps an important note from looking at NIV use, when we 
compared low NIV users in both arms, we observed a worse survival in the pacing arm. And this suggests that diaphragm pacing would not be beneficial for patients who could not tolerate NIV. So if there was any subgroup you thought might have particular benefit with those who couldn't get on with NIV, we were even seeing uh, a worse survival in that group. Okay, well, we must draw this to a close shortly, but um, what, what are the next steps? The findings from our study, I think, are clear, indicate that diaphragm patients shouldn't be used as the routine treatment for patients with ALS. Um, clearly, this result is contrary to the previous cohort study. There are two other high-quality uh, studies ongoing, one in France and one in the States, and I understand they're organizing the DMEC equivalent to review their interim data. So I think it's important to see you know, what the results of those studies are. Meanwhile, if clinicians remain uncertain, then they should support ongoing studies rather than placing diaphragm pacing systems in patients as a routine procedure, which is occurring currently in many countries across the world. We can't exclude particular subgroups may benefit, for example, those with a predominantly upper motor neuron disease. However, I think it's important that we don't make any more assumptions about this technology uh, and any um, hypotheses need to be tested in an appropriate design study. And then on a wider note, I'd like to see some reflection on the increasing nothing-to-lose philosophy uh, that is occurring. And I think we have to ask ourselves, is it right to lower the standard of evidence required for interventions for populations such as ALS? Our study suggests that the correct approach is usually going to have to be an RCT of some description. Indeed, uh, th that's a very interesting philosophical point, isn't it? And you, you think of even legislation that um, has been tried to push through on, on to, you know, giving um, patients who are near to the end of life, giving them drugs where there isn't actually an evidence base for it. I mean, that's actually become a political issue in itself. I think the ref on reflecting on what's happened in the, in the diagnostic studies, it, it should inform that debate about how we use so-called compassionate use of drugs towards the end of life. Yes, the patient innovation bill, etc. Yeah, very interesting indeed. Well, concerning results, clearly, but very important to publish and, and good to, to be talking about them. So Chris McDermott on the line from Sheffield. Many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet Neurology. Thank you very much.